begin reading at verse 3. Let's read it together, shall we? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Shall we pray? We love you, Lord. Thank you for today that we can come together to celebrate as the people of God the most momentous occasion in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for this privilege. I don't ever want to take lightly the privilege we have of assembling together to worship you. Now, Lord, I'm reminded one more time of just how inadequate I am to proclaim your truth. And so today, once again, I ask the Holy Spirit to make up for all of my inadequacies. And I pray that you will help us while I'm speaking, not to hear so much what I say, but to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is going to speak to our hearts. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith and ask that you would draw them to a place of repentance. Restore them to you, O Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. Lord, when I say that, Some of us have names and faces that immediately come to us, people that we care about. These are the ones we're praying for today, Lord. And Lord, I pray for the people in this service, both in-house and online. I ask that you will touch them. I don't know what concerns, what burdens, what struggles they carry, but you do, Lord. And right now, we just lift our hearts to you and ask that you will touch your people. Touch them at the point of their need. Lord, there's some people that need some answers. There's some people that have reached a dead end and they need a breakthrough. Touch them by the power of your spirit. Transform their lives. I thank you for doing that today. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters. The name of our risen Lord, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Ever since Jesus walked the dusty roads of Israel, there is a grand idea 
and a controversial word that has distinguished the Christian faith from the message of every other belief system. The idea is kingdom. The word is Lord. The primary message of Jesus was about the kingdom of heaven. From the very first message that was preached at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, all the way to the end of the Bible and the book of the Revelation, the central message is the same. It's a message that says there is a new kingdom, and over that kingdom, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what Peter preached in Acts 2.36 when he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the salvation formula that is given in Romans 10.9 when it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the baptism formula in Acts 19.5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the teaching of the early church in 1 Corinthians 8.6 that proclaims, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is the hope of believers that is testified to by the Apostle John in his vision as he writes in Revelation 19, 16, that the returning Christ has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Lord, by definition, means one having power and authority over others. Lord means one who has achieved mastery or who exercises leadership or great power in some area. The the culture in which the early church was born was dominated by the Roman Empire. It was during this time that the Roman Caesars had proclaimed themselves deity. And it was required for every person in the empire to appear once a year before the city magistrates, burn a pinch of incense before a statue of the Caesar, and proclaim Caesar is Lord. It was the assertion that Jesus Christ is Lord that brought those early believers into conflict with the ruling powers of the day. It was their refusal to perform this sacred ritual that brought about such persecution upon the early church. See, Caesar might be a ruler, but Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler. Caesar might be a king, but Jesus Christ is the king of kings. Caesar might be a lord, but Jesus Christ is the lord. And and can I just tell you, this is always the point of contention. Who's in charge? Who has the authority? Who really is lord? I discovered there are many things vying for the position of Lord in our lives. There there are many things that exercise authority over us. For some, success is the Lord to whom they pay homage. For some, happiness is Lord. For some, it's possessions. For some, recreation. For some, career is Lord. Oh, you may not bow before them and burn incense to them. 
but you live in such a way that they exercise the greatest influence and authority over your life. By virtue of the obedience you give them, they become your Lord. But the message we proclaim on this Resurrection Sunday is one that runs counter to the prevailing culture. It's the message learned from the virgin birth. It's the message learned from the virtuous life. It's the message learned from the vicarious suffering. It's the message learned from the victorious resurrection. Above the din of a cacophony of voices and in the midst of a pantheon of pretenders, that message boldly declares there is only one who is worthy to be called Lord. The message we proclaim is simply this, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not just a Lord, he is the Lord. He's not just Lord over some things, he's Lord over all things. He's Lord over your anxiety. He's Lord over your addiction. He's Lord over your brokenness. He's Lord over your depression. He's Lord over your disease. He's Lord over your failure. He's Lord over your heartache. He's Lord over your insecurity. He's Lord over your loneliness. He's Lord over your unbelieving spouse. He's Lord over your unsaved children. He's Lord over your unpaid bills. He's Lord over your yesterday. He's Lord over your today. He's Lord over your destiny. He's Lord over your eternity. There is no sphere. There is no kingdom over which his lordship does not extend. Jesus Christ is Lord. The confession from the words of the text says, first of all, that he is a redeeming Lord. Listen to verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, we've gathered in this place today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But what you must never forget is that before there can be a resurrection, there must first be a crucifixion. The death of Jesus wasn't incidental. His death wasn't accidental. No, no. His death was fundamental. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah was given a revelation in which he was able to look through the telescope of time and see the death of the Messiah. And when he did, he didn't just see the event of his death, but Isaiah saw the meaning of his death. And the primary meaning, the primary purpose of the death of Jesus on the cross was substitution. The prophet speaks in Isaiah 53 and 6 and says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You know, if you were looking for one word in the Bible to describe the nature of God, there are a lot of candidates we could, we could throw out there. Some would think of love. God is love. Some would think of good. Some might propose kind or compassionate or faithful. But the one word the Bible would use to describe the essence of God is the word holy. That word holy means that God is the complete other. The Bible says in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 3, that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God is holy. Humanity, 
is sinful. The decree of holy God is that sin is going to be judged. There is no place anywhere, anytime where any sin ever went unpunished. God never overlooks sin. God always judges sin because God is a holy God. So the simple question is this, who is going to bear the punishment for sin? Are you going to bear it? Or is there a substitute, one who will bear it in your stead? The question is never if sin is going to be punished. The question is only who will bear the punishment. That's the purpose of the cross. On the cross, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, became the substitute. The death of Jesus was him dying in your place. On the cross, Jesus paid the price. And first of all, I want you to see that he took the penalty for your sin. Isaiah saw him in verse 5 and said, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Your sins were laid on the Lord Jesus. He never sinned, but he became sin for you. That's substitution. And in that substitution, he was redeeming you. He was paying the price. He was buying you back from the slavery of sin. In that substitution, he was taking the punishment for sin. He paid the penalty for your every sin so you don't have to try and pay it. I thought somebody would be happy about that, but I'll just move on. On the cross, Jesus took your sin. On the cross, Jesus took your shame. Isaiah says in verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. You know, when Jesus was brought before his accusers, he was lied about, he was criticized, and blasphemed, and framed. They said all manner of terrible things against the Lord, but he never opened his mouth in a rebuttal. He was totally innocent, but he never said a word in his defense. That's because not only was he taking your sin, he was also taking your shame. You know, I was thinking about this. Jesus could just as easily have stood before Pilate and said, look, let me just tell you something. Before you crucify me, I want to get one thing straight. Just for the record, I'm the Savior of the world. I've come to this world to die for the sins of lost humanity And I want you to know I've worked out an arrangement with God the Father where all the sins of all people for all time are going to be laid upon me. I'm going to be a representative sinner. I'm going to have the sins of the world laid on me, but it's not really my sin. I want you to know right now I'm innocent and I'm just doing this for other people. He could have done that and then gone to the cross as a hero. Had he done that, he would have died in dignity. But he didn't die in dignity. He died in shame. In that act, he was taking your shame and my shame upon himself. He took your sin. He took your shame. I also want you to know he took your separation. Isaiah says in verse 8 that he was taken away. He says that he was cut off out of the land of the living. On the cross, Jesus in loneliness cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Those words are found in a Psalm of David, Psalm 22. But I want you to know Jesus wasn't looking back and quoting David. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm. When David penned those words, he was actually looking forward, quoting Jesus and what he would say on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was bearing the same thing that everyone that is not saved will one day have to eternally endure, and that is separation from Almighty God. Jesus took the wrath of God, the wrath that should have been visited upon your life, he took it into his own heart while people pointed their fingers in his face and said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the Son of God, let him come down from the cross. You would think God would come to his aid But God turned his back. Jesus had become iniquity, and the pure, holy eyes of God cannot behold iniquity. Jesus never sinned, yet he became sin. Not only did he take your sin and your shame and your separation, he also took your suffering. Isaiah said in verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He said in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, that word that is used for death in verse 9 is an interesting one. In the Hebrew language, it's an intensive plural. That, it literally means deaths. He was with a rich man in his deaths. What that means is that Jesus died my death and he died your death. He died the death that was assigned to everyone who has ever lived. The agony, the horrible suffering, the eternal anguish that was your due, he took it upon himself so you wouldn't have to bear it. On the cross, all the sins of all the people of the world were distilled and put upon one individual, the Lord Jesus. On the cross, all of eternity was compressed into one moment of time. At Calvary, Jesus, being infinite, suffered in a finite period of time What you, being finite, would suffer in an infinite period of time. Everything you would suffer because of your sin in in an eternity away from God, Jesus suffered for you and for you and for you and for you and for the whole world. No one took his life. That's what he said in John 10, 18. He said, no man takes away my life, but I lay it down myself. I freely give it. You can't take my life, but I can give it. See, when your sin had condemned you to die, Jesus took your place. He gave his life for you. He let them nail his hands so that yours could be lifted in praise. He let them nail his feet so that yours could be free to walk in his light. He let them break his heart so yours could be mended. He let them scourge his body so you could be made whole. He let them give him a crown of thorns so you could wear a crown of glory. He let them offer him a bitter cup so you could drink from living water. He let them beat his back so you could be healed. 
He let them mock him so you could have dignity. He let them drag him to an unjust courtroom so you could be justified. He let them show no mercy so you could receive mercy. He let them take away his rights so you could have grace. He let them strip him so you could be clothed with righteousness. He let them put him through agony so you could be comforted. He let them scream at him so you could have peace of mind. He allowed himself to be separated from the Father so you could be restored to a right relationship with the Father. He gave his life to die so you could live. Jesus paid it all. I tell you, Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning. He's a whole lot better at saving than you are at sinning. When you confess that Jesus is Lord, you're confessing that he's a redeeming Lord. Not only is Jesus a redeeming Lord, but the text also proclaims that he is a risen Lord. That's what it's talking about in verse 4 when it says that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. King David spoke of the risen, risen Lord when he sang in Psalm 16 and 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The prophet looked ahead to the risen Lord when he said in Isaiah 53 and 10, but when his soul has been made an offering for sin, then he shall have a multitude of children, many heirs, he shall live again. The angel proclaimed the risen Lord to the women at the tomb when he said in Matthew 28 and 6, he is not here for he is risen just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Peter and John testified to the risen Lord in John 20 verses 1 through 10 as they examined the empty tomb and came away with doubt replaced by faith. Mary Magdalene bore witness to the risen Lord in John 20 and 18 after she had an encounter with the resurrected Christ and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Thomas proclaimed worship to the risen Lord in John 20 and 28 after he placed his finger into the nail scars and his hand into the pierced side of the resurrected Christ and exclaimed, my Lord and my God. The early church made confession of the risen Lord as they wrote in their historical document in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Most of you are familiar with the name Charles Colson. He was known as the hatchet man of the administration of President Richard Nixon. He was one of the men involved in the Watergate scandal that ultimately brought about the resignation of President Nixon. Colson surrendered his life to Jesus in 1973, but because of his crimes, he was sent to prison to serve a seven-month sentence for his part in the Watergate affair. After his release, he devoted the rest of his life to ministry. He founded Prison Fellowship, a ministry to which he devoted everything after that until his, until his death. Here's what this man had to say about the resurrection. I love this quote. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. He went on and said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 
12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. After Jesus was officially declared dead, Joseph and Nicodemus, two covert followers of Jesus, claimed his crucified corpse. They took his brutally mangled body down from the cross and placed him in what the Bible says was a borrowed tomb. Now think about that. Why would anybody ever even think of borrowing a tomb? I guess it's okay to borrow it if you're only going to need it for the weekend. Pilate gave strict orders to make it as secure as possible. Every natural precaution was taken. A heavy stone was rolled across the entrance. The government made it as secure as possible. A seal was placed on the tomb and soldiers were stationed to guard it. Unbelief made it as secure as possible. The religious elite mocked the very idea of a resurrection. Death itself made it as secure as possible. He laid his icy fingers upon the Lord Jesus as he breathed his last and surrendered his spirit. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus, my Savior. But early on the morning of the first day of the week, resurrection power flowed through him. The cloth that wrapped him like a mummy could not hold him. The seal on the tomb could not hold him. The stone covering the entrance could not hold him. The guards outside the tomb could not hold him. The unbelief of the Sadducees and the contempt of the Pharisees could not hold him. Even the grip of death itself could not hold him. Jesus walked out of that grave a living, risen, victorious Savior. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. The message on this day isn't just that there was a crucified Savior, but we today celebrate a risen Lord. I tell you, he's alive. He's alive. And because he lives, he is shown to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Listen, Jesus lives. And that means your past can be forgiven. Jesus lives. That means your present can be managed. Jesus lives. That means your future can be secure. I want to tell you, because he lives, he can put your life back together. Because he lives, he can restore your losses. Because he lives, he can renew your mind. Because he lives, he can heal your body. Because he lives, he can mend your broken heart. Because he lives, he can heal your fractured relationships. Because he lives, he can put your marriage back together. Because he lives, he can teach you to trust again. Because he lives, he can help you to love again. Because he lives, he can cancel your doubts. Because he lives, he can remove your fears. Because he lives, he can put joy back into your life. Because he lives, he can draw a bloodline around you and dare the devil to cross it. 
because he lives, he has ordered a better future for you than anything you could have ever made on your own. Because he lives, you can have a new life. Because he lives, you can have a new mind. Because he lives, you can have a new hope. Because he lives, you can have a new purpose. Because he lives, you can have a new perspective. Because he lives, you can have a new lease on life. Because he lives, old things are passed away. Because he lives, all things are become new. That's the miracle of the resurrection. That's the message of the risen Lord today. Come on, give him praise today. Give him praise in this house. Hallelujah. He is a redeeming Lord. He is a risen Lord. And finally, I want you to see that he is a returning Lord. That's the promise of Jesus in John 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise of the angels in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That's the promise of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Listen, if you want to know what this world is coming to, you know, I hear people all the time, man, I just don't know what the world's coming to. Well, let me just tell you. It's coming to Jesus. If you think the outlook is bleak, I want to tell you the uplook is very bright. Jesus is coming. He, he isn't just the redeeming Lord and the risen Lord, but he is the returning Lord. And this is the blessed hope of all who have put their faith in him. This is the anticipation of those who trust him. Think about that. What a day it's going to be when the Lord comes again. Remember the first time he came as a lamb. Well, the next time he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The first time he came to redeem. The next time he's coming to reign. The first time he came as a suffering servant. The next time he's coming as sovereign Lord. The first time they ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? The next time he's coming as king of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, the first time they gave him a crown of thorns. The next time he'll wear a diadem of glory. The first time he was announced by angels. The next time he's coming with ten thousands of his saints. The first time he came in meekness, the next time he's coming in majesty <laughs> to a world searching for answers, to a world steeped in despair, to a world desperate for hope. That's when we proclaim a message of salvation. See, every other avenue is a dead end, but the message that brings assurance and help is the message that we proclaim this Resurrection Sunday. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's a redeeming Lord. He's a risen Lord. 
He's a returning Lord. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, freed me forever. (laughs) One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. As I bring the message to a close, I want to ask you a question. If there were some other way for people to be saved, don't you think God would have taken it? I mean, do you honestly think God would let his only son die in agony and blood upon that cross if you could be saved some other way? There's only one thing that will satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God, and that is the death of Jesus upon that cross. He's fulfilled his part. He's died as the substitute in your place. So you don't have to die for your sin. He has risen from the dead to once and for all demonstrate his power over every force that would seek to keep you from God. All that's required is for you to come to him just like you are. and Believe on him as your savior. Repent of your sin. Surrender your life to his lordship at that moment his victory can be your victory Jesus is calling you today will you come to him will you respond to the invitation will you surrender your life to Jesus is there some place in your life you need to invite him as Lord you know here's what I know I know that most of us Most of you who are sitting in this congregation, most of you who are online, I mean, anybody that'll sit and listen to a message, most of us are pretty good people. Most of you have have some concept, and, you know, if we were to go around the room, you'd say, oh, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. But have you really surrendered so that he is Lord of your life? I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer and ask Jesus to forgive your sin? I'm asking, did you say, and are you living in such a way that every part of your life is surrendered to his rulership, his lordship, his authority? See, here's the way we most, most of us do it. We sing. We sing this song, you know, I surrender all, Right? Anybody ever sung that? Three of us have sung that song. Okay. (laughs) What's the matter with the rest of you? Where where were you? No, okay. Yeah, you just wouldn't. Some of you wouldn't raise your hand if Jesus walked in the door and said, raise your hand. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do it. (sighs) Well, you just sit there. All right. We do. I surrender all, except for this little piece right over here that I like to keep for myself. We don't sing that, we don't say that, but that's what's going on in our mind. And if it's not going on in our mind, that's the way we live. So it's going on in our heart. I surrender all, except, um, except this little thing on my job here. You know, I, need, I, need, I can work this out by myself. I surrender all, except, you know, I'll, I'll, handle, I'll handle my checkbook, and I'll hand my, handle my investments, and I'll, I'll deal with my, my resources over here, because, you know, after all, that's, you know, that's just something I can take care of. 
I surrender all, except I, I need to go tell my kids how they need to behave and live. I'm not talking about the little ones that are still trying to learn some stuff. I'm talking about the older ones that have wandered away from God, and I'm trying to slap them upside the head with a two-by-four to get them straightened out. <laughs> Come on, moms and dads. Where, where are my moms and dads at? You know you want to do that. You know, my kids have no idea the grace of God that has been extended to their lives that has kept me from taking them out of this world multiple times. <laughs> Let's just get real right here on this Resurrection Sunday, okay? It's, you know how that is. That's what, isn't that how we live our lives? I surrender all, except, you know, I'm really still upset at that person that did me wrong about five years ago. And... You're laughing, but that's because you know it's true. And we hold on to those, we harbor those little pieces. And the Lord says, you know, a songwriter wrote it this way a number of years ago. So true. If he's not Lord of everything, he's not Lord at all. So what about it? Are you surrendered to his lordship? Because here's the deal. You can, you can do that as a decision of your will and have the confidence and the assurance of an eternity in his presence. Or you can bow up and say, you know, I'm just going to hang on to these one, these one or two little pieces for myself. I'm, I'm going to ignore his claim upon my life. I'm going to live for myself, not for him. But there will come a day because here's, here's the promise of God. He said to have this attitude that Jesus had. That even though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself, become became submissive, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because of his submission to the will of the Father, his surrender, God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every, watch this, every knee shall bow of things in heaven. Okay, we get that. Uh, here we, where we live, of things on the earth, even things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you can freely decide to do that now and enjoy the eternity in his presence, or you can wait till you get to eternity be removed from his presence, and then be forced to still acknowledge Jesus is Lord. This, today, today, not, not later on, today is the day to surrender to him, to receive his help, so you can begin to live that overcoming life. Make no mistake about it. 
whether you choose to acknowledge it or not. It's not going to change this central truth. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is. Some of you were present for our Friday evening service, which I talked about this briefly, but many of you were not, so those of you that heard it already, you probably need to hear it again because you probably forgot it, and those of you that didn't hear it need to hear it for the first time. I was talking about that, that's, that section of the crucifixion where Jesus is on the cross. You remember he was crucified in the middle between two thieves, one on either side. You remember that? And they're, they're cursing him, they're blaspheming him, they're hurling accusations at him, they're mocking him. But at some point in that crucifixion, the thief on one side just stopped and realized what was going on. I don't know when it happened. I, I think maybe it took place when Jesus is hanging on that cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Can you imagine that? Being completely unjustly punished and refusing to be offended. You know, it takes two to be offended. You do know that, right? It takes the person who's saying or doing something, but then if, in order for you to be offended, you have to receive the offense. If you refuse to be offended, you, it doesn't matter what they say or what they do, you, you're not offended. You just go on. Too many of us take the offense into ourselves, and then we churn on it until it becomes bitterness and anger and resentment. Not Jesus. He's there on the cross. He had every right to resent, every right to be offended, and he just says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I can't prove this. This is my thought. I think that's when this one thief realized there's something different going on here. And in that moment, he turns his head to Jesus. And he says, here's the word, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, fast forward just a few hours. Both thieves had their legs broken to hasten their demise. Jesus is already dead. They take everybody off the cross. When this one thief who said, Lord, remember me, he dies and his spirit goes and, and he's standing at the gates of heaven. And the angel is there, the, the admitting angel, and he looks at him and he says, what are you doing here? Right? He said, well, it's where I was told to come. Okay, let, let, let's, let's test this out. Uh, were you baptized? Nope. Uh, okay, what about church membership? Nope, never did that. 
Um, how about your mom and daddy? Were they, were they, no, they weren't praying people. Uh, let me go get my supervisor. He goes back and gets the head angel, brings him over. The guy says, all right, let's, let, let's go through this again. He says, how about reading the scriptures? Did you, no, never read, didn't read the Bible. Okay, let's just boil it all down. What about justification? He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Why are you here? Why should I let you in? And he just says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. That's how you get in. Because the man on the middle cross has paid it all. And you trust his word. He said, I could come. That's how you come to Jesus. Not because you're so good. Not because you've kept all the rules. But you just trusted Jesus. And you surrendered your life to him. Would you bow with me for a please, just a moment. Lord, I've done the best I know how to do today. So I ask you to make up for my inadequacies and help people to get past me to see Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I ask you now, tug on their hearts and draw them to Jesus. Don't let one of them be lost, Lord. While your heads are bowed for just a moment, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, maybe it's for the first time or maybe you say, I've done that, but I realize there's just this area that I've been hanging on to. And I need to surrender that to him today because I want him to be Lord of all of my life. If that's you and you want to surrender to Jesus, would you just quickly put your hand up and then you can put it right back down just so I can see you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Anyone else? Lord, I'm praying for these people who lifted their hands as an act of surrender. And I'm also praying for those that for whatever reason felt too intimidated to raise their hand, but in their heart, they're surrendering to you now. Hear our heart cry, Lord. Nothing in our hands do we bring, no, no good in ourselves. We just come because you invited us. Forgive us for our sin. Cleanse us from our sin. Now, as a decision of our will and an act of our faith, we surrender to you, Lord Jesus. Be Lord of my life. Be Lord of every part of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer today. Help me to live submitted to you. 
the rest of my life. Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer. Amen.